Heads with me once more as we go to the Lord to ask his blessing on the public preaching of his word. Let's pray together. Father, we are so glad that you have revealed yourself to us. We would never have discovered you in our blindness. But you have given us your word. And you promise that you are watching over your word to perform it. Lord, we pray now, would you feed your people on knowledge and understanding? May we want what you have to give us. Let your word come down like rain. May it water our souls. May it slake our thirst. And you say, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from your mouth. So feed us now, we pray, on the bread of life, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. God promised Israel in Exodus 15, 26, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Isaiah 53, 5 says of the Messiah, with his wounds, we are healed. Some self-proclaimed Christian teachers think those verses underwrite a birthright to bodily healing for every believer. In 1875, Mary Baker Eddy, founder of Christian Science, taught that Jesus came to save the world, not through his divinity, but by demonstrating right thinking. She said that suffering results from mental errors, and so believers must rid themselves of misperceptions that blocked mental and physical restoration. Essek Kenyon, a Pentecostal radio preacher in the early 1900s, tried to baptize Christian science into more biblical terms with his idea of faith cure. For Kenyon, illness perished when a patient believed and then acted as one whom God had already healed. After all, if God created by His Word and God made people in His own image, then people can speak their own realities into existence just like God, if only they will have enough faith. That is a very brief history of how Pentecostal prayer became name it and claim it, or as some have phrased it, blab it and grab it, and how Pentecostal preaching became word of faith, a word spoken in faith of what you want God to do for you, requests for healing 
morphed into positive thought and positive verbal confessions that healing was as good as done and that Christians are entitled to use the power of Jesus' name or God as healer as a sort of magic mantra. This is also why many Pentecostal churches and services operate as they do. Listen to Kate Bowler's description of a typical Pentecostal liturgy and see if it sounds familiar to what you might have experienced elsewhere. As verbal confession set faith in motion, as you spoke the reality that you wanted to come into existence, that you wanted God to perform for you, and your physical healing especially, as verbal confession set faith in motion, song offered opportunities for believers to activate the spiritual laws to effect divine healing of bodies. Music served as a lengthy and guided form of positive confession. Worshippers could benefit from the cyclical language of the oft-repeated choruses, repeating positive confessions that ideally allowed participants to release their faith From Mary Baker Eddy to E.W. Kenyon, from Oral Roberts to Paula White, from Kenneth Hagin to Kenneth Copeland, from Creflo Dollar, from T.D. Jakes to Joyce Meyer and Joel Osteen and Benny Hinn. False teachers and purported faith healers have made it big on the backs of poorly taught and therefore gullible Christians. But what do we see from the healing miracles recorded in Scripture. Let's turn together to Acts 3 and see what we find. As we study this morning, we will first tell the story, then we'll keep you in suspense until we give you the point of the story, and then we'll do some application thinking together at the end. We'll read it piecemeal as we go through. First, the story, and particularly the miracle, in chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms, and Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk. And entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement of what had happened to him. So it's three in the afternoon on a normal day in Jerusalem, time for public prayer at the temple. So Peter and John head up into the temple. And on their way in, there's a man born lame, paralyzed, palsied in his feet and ankles. First century Jewish paralytics were ceremonial outsiders. Leviticus 21.18 forbid any paralytic from being a priest. No one who has a blemish 
shall draw near, a man blind or lame, or one who has a mutilated face or a limb too long, because in Leviticus 21-23, that would have profaned God's sanctuary. You want intimacy with a perfect God as an Old Testament Jew? Well, you better be perfect yourself. Of course, that was about priests, but offerings themselves had to be perfect too. Deuteronomy 15.21, if it has any blemish, if it is lame or blind or has any serious blemish, whatever, you shall not sacrifice it to the Lord your God. So this guy knew himself to be an outsider. He's blemished. He's lame. God himself had said in Malachi 1.8, when you offer animals that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor and see if he'll accept you. Now, if you were a paralytic and a first century Jew, wouldn't you take that a little bit personally? Wouldn't you have a hard time not taking that personally? Day after day, he had been carried to the gate, beautiful, probably on the east side of the temple, just outside one of the main entrances. Every single day, you would see crowds of people flocking into the temple. And as he sat stuck outside the gate, he would ask alms, mercy gifts, charity, from those who were going into the temple. And this afternoon, Peter and John were shuffling their way into the temple in the midst of the crowd, unaware of who they were. This poor paralytic gets their attention, asks for a little loose change. Peter stops, stares right at him, tells the guy, look at us. Which makes you kind of wonder, did he ask without looking at him? Was he too ashamed, too dejected to make eye contact? Verse 5, the paralytical, paralytic looks him in the eye. All he's hoping for is a handout, but Peter has a better currency to give him. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Peter gives him a hand. Luke says he raised him up. Immediately his feet and ankles are strengthened. Leaping up, he stood and walked. And where's the first place he walked? For his whole life, as Luke narrates it, day after day he had been set down by others outside the temple gate watching everybody else walk in. And now finally, after all these years, he went into the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. There's a theme of access here if you just follow the prepositions. I want you to listen to a kind of wooden literal translation of these verses that indicate placement or movement. In 3.1, Peter and John went up into the temple. They had access. In verse 2, every day the paralytic was carried to the gate of the temple, restricted access. Verse 2 again, he asks alms from those going into, into the temple in the original language. It repeats the preposition. Verse 3, he sees Peter and John about to enter into, into the temple. The paralytic has lived his whole life as an outsider watching everyone else go in, into the temple, 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 while he's stuck outside the gate. Peter heals him by the name of Jesus. In verse 8, paralytic leaps up, walks, and goes in with them into the temple himself, finally, for the first time. Walking and leaping and praising God. The name of Jesus. Jesus' person, his position, and his power. 
has given this outsider access into the presence of God. That word for leaping here only happens five times in the Greek version of the Old Testament, one of which is Isaiah 35, 6, and the promise of the new creation. Then the lame man, same word for lame as we have here in Acts 3, shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Well, no wonder Luke uses that word for leap twice here in Acts 3. In the same sentence, the paralytic's healing illustrates the inbreaking of the new creational benefits that we have in Jesus' literal, physical resurrection from the dead. Verse 9, all the people saw him walking and praising God. They recognized him as the guy planted outside the temple gate. This is that guy. This is the same guy. Everybody's drop-jawed in verse 10. All of a sudden, verse 11, the whole temple precinct is buzzing. It is electric. This place is going nuts. Everybody's yelling. Everybody's pointing. Everybody is crowding around Peter. The aftermath happens in verses 11 to 16. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. You killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you all see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. The former paralytic hanging all over Peter as he walks in, maybe has his arm around Peter's shoulder in gratitude, right in the middle of all the action, feeling the camaraderie of walking together with anyone for the first time, going anywhere, and all the better for walking into the temple. Whole crowd swarming around Peter and John, Solomon's portico. This is probably thousands of people. Like a home crowd storming the field after an upset win. Peter just became an instant icon, a celebrity, Everybody wants a selfie with Peter. And all the reporters want to interview him. Peter sees what's happening around him to him. And he doesn't just speak to it in verse 12. He actually preaches both the means and the meaning of what just happened. He says, in effect, why are you looking at us? And he clarifies, you guys are acting like we did this by our own power or piety or holiness, devotion to God, like we're extra holy or something. But this didn't happen because of who we are in ourselves. This happened because of who God is and what God has done in raising Jesus from the dead, and receiving him back at his right hand on the throne of heaven. This happened by Jesus' power and by Jesus' piety, his godliness, his devotion. Yes, I was perhaps the pipeline, but the power was all from Jesus. More specifically, the God of the Jews, the God of the Old Testament, the God of the patriarchs, the forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. This God, our God, glorified His servant, 
Jesus, whom you handed over and denied in the presence of Pilate, when Pilate had already decided to let him go. In other words, the paralytic was healed because of Jesus' physical resurrection from the dead and his physical ascension to God's right hand by the authority and power of God himself, the God of the Old Testaments. He's the one who glorified Jesus in that way. And because God glorified Jesus in the ascension, that has released the Spirit onto the church and into the world with unprecedented power. In other words, don't act so surprised. We all should have seen this coming from the Old Testament. Jesus is God's suffering servant from Isaiah 52. And guess who facilitated his suffering? You guys, Peter said. Pilate would have released him if you would have relented. But you didn't. You denied the Holy and Righteous One. You asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. I mean, those two verses are dripping with irony thicker than molasses. You released a murderer in Barabbas only to murder the author of life yourself. Again, as we noticed last week, or week before from Peter's preaching, this is not exactly seeker-sensitive material. He's going after them for crucifying Christ. But when you murdered him, God raised him from the dead. Peter says in verse 15, John and I are witnesses that this whole sequence of Jesus' ministry the kangaroo court that strung him up on false charges, his resurrection from the dead, his ascension to heaven, the whole nine yards. We saw it all with our own two eyes. We testify to that history. And because Jesus is risen from the dead and ascended to God's right hand in heaven, back where he belongs on the throne of all reality, his name has given this paralytic power to stand on his own two feet. And none of this has happened in some dark corner. You guys are now witnesses of what happened today. You all knew this guy. You've known him forever. He sits here every day. Like clockwork. He's been a literal fixture outside the temple for decades, and now he's walking and leaping and praising his way into the temple as an effect of Jesus' physical resurrection and ascension to heaven. This guy has perfect health because Jesus himself has risen to perfect health and glorified health as the apostolic Lamb of God, the spotless Lamb of God, who fulfilled all that the sacrificial and ceremonial laws anticipated. Then beginning in verse 17, Peter moves from means, how did this happen? Power of the resurrected Christ, to meaning. What does this mean? And he expounds that meaning in terms of the past, the present, and the future. Verse 17 and 18. And now... Presently, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. 
So it gives them the benefit of the doubt. I know you acted in ignorance when you subjected the author of life to judicial murder. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. God did this. What you did to Jesus in ignorance, God superintended in his omniscience to accomplish his own sovereign plan to save us from the penalty and power of our sins. Just as he promised through all the prophets. Jesus fulfilled the meaning of everything that all the prophets were saying and foretelling. New creation, new exodus, return from exile, suffering servant, supernatural healing, wholeness restored, all of it. What happened through Jesus and to Jesus is the reason for what happened to the paralytic. And Peter says that what happened to the paralytic now puts you on notice. Look there in verse 19 for the present and personal meaning. Repent, therefore, and turn back. Change your mind about Jesus, about yourself, about your sins, about your so-called righteousness. And on the basis of changing your mind, change your direction. Turn back. Turn around and go the other way. Walk away from your sin. Turn back to Jesus as your ultimate prophet who both brings God's word and is God's word. Let him tell you who God is and who you are in relation to him. Instead of you thinking that you can tell Jesus who you are and who you think you are in relationship to God. Turn back to Jesus as your ultimate priest who represents God to you and you to God by the sacrifices of his own body on the cross in your place for your sin. Turn back to Jesus as your ultimate king, the son of David, son of God who rules you better than you can ever rule yourself. But as Peter tells us to turn back, he gives us incentives For the future, verses 19 to 21. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Tells us in verse 19, Turn back in order that your sins may be wiped away, canceled, erased. See, when the apostles preached the gospel, they preached the necessity of repentance from sins for the forgiveness of sins. Repent not after your sins have been wiped away, but in order that for the purpose that your sins might be wiped away. Friend, you cannot become a Christian until and unless you turn back from your sins and take God's side against your sins. That's a biblical command. Forgiveness is free and it is full. That is true. But it will cost you your loyalty to your sins. Now that does not mean that your salvation depends on the quality or perfection 
of your repentance. You cannot repent well enough to deserve forgiveness. That's not what Peter is saying. But it does mean that forgiveness without repentance does not exist. God does not forgive those who do not repent. God does forgive those who do repent, and those who do repent do so because they have already trusted that God will be merciful to them in the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ. Look, you don't plead guilty if the court has not placed the deal on the table. Heaven invites you to throw yourself on the mercy of the court because the judge has offered the blood of his righteous son in your sinful place so that if you do trust and repent, then you will be acquitted of your guilt and credited with Jesus' righteousness. The next two incentives for changing your mind and direction are so that times of refreshing may come from the Lord's presence and so that he might send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. Times of refreshing are probably for the present, which are down payments on the sending of Christ in the future. Like this. This is a down payment. This is a time of refreshing. Every Lord's Day, every conversation you have with a fellow Christian about the gospel, that's a time of refreshing for you. It's like Peter is telescoping the present and the future benefits of the gospel into one package. Times of refreshing for this life and the sending of the Christ for the restoring of the whole cosmos in the life to come. That verb for restoring is the same one the apostles themselves use in verse, chapter 1, verse 6, when they ask Jesus, is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? The healing of this paralytic illustrates that restoration in microcosm. It's a little version of that restoration. But Peter's not preaching some new heresy. This was all prophesied in the Old Testament that these Jews believed. Look there in verses 21 to 24. 22 to 24. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. Jesus' ascension to the throne of heaven in chapter 1 was necessary to fulfill Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put all your enemies under your feet. It was necessary for heaven to receive Jesus in the ascension so that Jesus could preside over the global expansion of the church and the conquering of all of his enemies before he comes back to make all things right and new. This is the message that God was speaking through all his Old Testament prophets, from Moses to Malachi. Peter quotes Deuteronomy 18.15, where Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up a prophet like me from among your brothers. Peter preaches Jesus as that prophet. Listen to him, listen to Jesus, or you will get cut off from God's people. And that's the message of all the prophets, Peter says, from Samuel all the way through the end of the Old Testament. They were all 
all foretelling these days, the days of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, ascension, and the pouring out of His Spirit in power on His apostles to prove the truth of Jesus as the promised Messiah. That's what the Old Testament is about. All of it. As if that were not enough, these Jews were getting priority access to this promised Messiah in verses 25 and 26. You, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham and in you, in your offspring, shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, Jesus, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. You, you Jewish people here at Solomon's Portico in the Jerusalem Temple Complex, you who crucified Jesus, you are the sons, the heirs to God's prophetic promises to Abraham and national Israel. God sent his Messiah, Jesus, to you guys first, Peter says, in order to turn you by his power from your wickedness in rejecting God's message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is the ultimate offspring of Abraham who will bless all the families of the earth, whether they're Jewish or not. All the families of the earth. That promise from Genesis 12, mentioned here in verse 25, foreshadows where the gospel is about to go in the rest of the book of Acts to the ends of the earth, to all the families of the earth. But notice where repentance was a command for people to obey in verse 19. Here it's stated as a gift from God to be received in verse 26. The design is very much like what Isaiah had said long before. God raised up his suffering servant, Jesus, and Jesus has now come in power to the Jews in the healing miracle of Acts 3 so that the Jews themselves can become a believing corporate servant of God to take the message of the gospel of Christ to the Gentiles, the non-Jews. And the rest of Acts is going to show you how these Jerusalem Jews will or will not rise to that challenge. What is the point? The point is that Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension gives healing access to God's promised new creation. Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension gives healing access to God's promised new creation. That's the point. Now, what do we do with that point? Well, first, we should recognize here how Peter's talking about Jesus. Because there's a lot of really bad biblical scholarship that you can read off of books from places like Barnes & Noble and elsewhere, stuff you get on Amazon, that'll tell you, oh, it took a long time for the early church to figure out that Jesus is God. And that makes us suspicious because it makes it look like it's a power play in the early church 
for some people to kind of get their way on what orthodoxy would eventually become. Is that what's going on here? Is Peter just kind of feeling his way to who he thinks Jesus is? Is it taking a long time for the churches to kind of agree on who Jesus is and what he means for the churches and what that means for orthodoxy and Christianity? No, that is not what's going on. Peter delivered this sermon in about 34 A.D. Already, Peter thinks Jesus is the suffering servant of Isaiah. He's the Messiah. This does not take long at all. This is less than a year after Jesus' death, just a few months. The doctrine of Jesus as the Messiah, Son of God, Savior, did not develop over time as if it were incubating in the churches or being forced on the churches by manipulative leaders and overpowering institutions who wanted to control everything. No. The divinity and lordship of Jesus is being preached right here, just months after Jesus was crucified. Peter admits him to be the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. In fact, Peter frames his whole sermon with references to Jesus as God's servant, once in verse 13 and again in verse 26. There was no intramural debate in the early church about whether Jesus was really God's servant or whether he was really risen from the dead or whether he really was Lord in Christ. He has preached like that from the very outset by the apostles that Jesus himself chose to represent him. It's as simple as that. Peter is not the one sowing doubt and confusion about Jesus' identity. That has been the role of modern scholarship, so-called. We should also recognize that only God can turn us from our sins. Only God can turn us from our sins. That's the point of verse 26. God sent Jesus to turn us from our wickedness. Jesus illustrated that truth that only he can turn us from our wickedness in how he healed the paralytic. This guy was paralyzed from birth. He had never had strength in his feet and ankles. He wasn't even asking to be healed. This was not the paralytic's idea. This isn't even what he wanted from Peter. He was asking for something far less than God was able to give him through Peter. And of course, the paralytic could not heal himself or contribute anything to his own healing. The name of Jesus, again, Jesus' person, his position, and his power healed this man. And just so, Jesus is the one who regenerates us by the power of His Spirit, saves us completely without leaving us anything to contribute to our own salvation. Jesus did it all. God saves sinners. The Father plans our salvation. The Son accomplishes our salvation. The Spirit affects and applies our salvation. And He saves us from our paralysis in our own sin. We were unable to serve God. So when God saves a sinner, the healing of the paralytic is how he does it. Except for the fact 
that, Bible, that the Bible doesn't just call us paralyzed in our sins, the Bible calls us dead in our sins. Ephesians 2. Friend, if you are walking with God in Christ today, if you are walking with Him, that is God's doing, not your doing. This should both humble us in our own walks with Christ and it should encourage and embolden us in our evangelism. Since God already knows that He must do all the healing and saving work if any of our unbelieving friends or family are ever to be saved through our evangelism into a walk with Christ. Notice too that Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension cleanses us from all our sins. If you're a note-taker, I'm going to use the words death, resurrection, and ascension a lot, so just put D-R-A, okay? You won't be able to keep up otherwise. Now, sinner, listen again to why you should repent of your sins in verse 19, so that your sins may be blotted out, blotted out, wiped away, erased, removed, cleansed, covered, canceled. Do you realize what God is offering you here, sinner? He is offering you now, in this room, the blessing of your sins being blotted out. Isn't that what your conscience needs? For your sins to be blotted out, erased, both from God's memory and from your conscience. You need a clean slate with God. And you can have it. You can have that over and over and over again. If you will live a life of repenting from your sins, agreeing with God about your sins, turning away from them, fighting against them, taking God's side against them. Again, your repentance will never be perfect. You will even have to repent of the imperfections in your repentance. But God is faithful, and Jesus' blood is so thick and so powerful that it can blot out even the darkest sins and the stains that they have left on your soul. And if you are repenting, what this means is that we no longer need our own cleansing rituals. No more cutting to bleed out the impurities. No more bulimia, as if rejecting your food can cleanse your soul. No more severe bodily regimens, as if sweating or dieting could purge your heart. No more superstition of any kind, as if some magical mantra or mystical state could make you forget all that you've done. It also means you don't have anything to prove anymore. If if Jesus' blood has blotted out your sins, you got nothing left to prove. Your guilt is removed. You don't have to prove that you're not guilty. Jesus' blood already proved that for you. No more feeling that you have to justify yourself to everybody by all that you're doing. 
Jesus' righteousness has already justified you in God's courtroom. God is the one who justifies. Who is there to condemn? Who else's justification do you want? No more competing for the attention or approval of other people. God already approves of you in Christ just as much as he approves of Christ himself because his righteousness was credited to your account. Jesus' blood will blot out even the worst stain on your soul. And his righteousness will cover your shame so that even God's all-seeing eye will never again see the nakedness of your soul. That's what's waiting for you when you repent. And those who trust in Jesus have access to God and His new creation by faith. Just like this paralytic, we were formerly outcasts, unable to enter God's presence, unfit for this access and therefore outsiders to God's place. But praise God, He has given us access through Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. Again, where's the first place the paralytic went? Where would the first place be that you would go if you were a paralytic outside the temple? Would it be to the Mediterranean seaside? Or to Mount Sinai? Maybe to go gawk at the palace in Jerusalem? Or the Colosseum in Rome? Not for this paralytic. He went into the temple. He went to church with God's people. And what kind of imagery was that temple filled with? If you'll remember, it's filled with garden imagery, new creation imagery, pictures of pomegranates and palm trees, engravings of skies and seas. That's all new creation stuff. As soon as we are healed by faith in Jesus, we get inaugurated access into his new creational reality. Romans 5.2, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Ephesians 2.18, through Jesus we have access in one spirit to the Father. Ephesians 3.12, we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Jesus. Why? Not just, just because of what God did for us. That's certainly true. But of what Jesus did in us and to us. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, then he, that person, is in himself, in herself, a new creation. The old is past, the new has come. Jesus fits us for access to God. He forgives all your iniquity, heals all your diseases, redeems your life in the pit, crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. He knows your frame. He knows what you need. But how? How does He heal us? By His wounds you are healed, Isaiah 53, which Peter himself quotes in his first letter. Just as the healed man entered the new creational temple, so we will one day, enter the new creation 
that that temple foreshadowed because Jesus heals us of our paralysis and sin. Friend, if you are in Christ by faith, by faith that repents from sin, then you will have a share in God's new creation when Jesus returns to make all things right and new. Faith in Jesus unites you to Jesus, both in his death to sin, which leads you to repent, and in his resurrection to new life, which guarantees your resurrection to life when he returns. So Christian, when you die, your soul will be immediately with Jesus in heaven. To be away from the body is to be at home with the Lord as a Christian. So Christian, if you fear death, trust Jesus for that. He's already gone through it. And he has taken the sting out of death by satisfying the law's curse against sin on your behalf. So now you will not experience death as a curse if you're trusting in Christ. As one trusting in Christ, Jesus experienced death as a curse for you in your place so that you can experience death as a blessing and as entrance into the paradise of God. And Jesus will walk with you through your own death. He will hold your hand He will carry you even to the other shore. You won't be alone. You will have the friend of sinners with you every step of the way. You notice too that Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension fulfills all God's Old Testament prophetic promises. All of them. Look there in verse 18. What God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Now just take that sentence in. Read it again. All the prophets, Moses to Malachi, foretold about the suffering of Christ. All of them. Not just Isaiah 53. Not just Jonah's three days in the whale. Not just Zechariah and the shepherd struck down so that the sheep are scattered. All of them. The pattern of Israel's exile and return points to it. Jeremiah, as the weeping prophet, prefigures the man of sorrows. Ezekiel's new temple, as the spring of the river of life, prefigures Jesus' resurrected and ascended body, releasing the Spirit on His people. Daniel's escape from certain death in the fiery furnace and then the lion's den prefigures Jesus' escape from the tomb after three days. Hosea's observation that God had struck Israel down only to bind them up, His promise that on the third day He will raise us up that we might live before Him, prefigures Jesus' death and resurrection as the ultimate Israelite. Every prophetic threat of God's judgment on Israel through foreign armies prefigures Jesus enduring the rage of the nations and the wrath of the kings against Him on the cross. He Himself is Israel destroyed under God's wrath and restored by God's righteous vindication in His resurrection. Jesus is David exiled from His own kingdom and returned 
to rule his own. He is himself the righteous nation condemned by the wicked in Habakkuk. When God says to Judah in Zephaniah 3.15, the Lord has taken away the judgments against you, he says that just as much to the suffering Jesus in the tomb as he did to Judah under God's curse of exile. The glory of the former temple in Haggai is nothing in comparison to the glory of the latter temple, and just so, Jesus' glory in his resurrection and ascension far outweighs the glory of his earthly ministry. It's all about him. And Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension inaugurates God's new creation. When Luke says, the lame man leaped, he leaped up and he leaped his way into the temple. That's Isaiah 35, 6. The lame will leap like a deer. But in that same context, we find new creation language mixed also with new exodus language. Waters break forth in the wilderness. Streams in the desert, the burning sand will become a pool, thirsty ground, springs of water, a highway shall be there, Exodus. And it shall be called the way, the hados of holiness, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return, new Exodus, and come to Zion with singing. The new Exodus will be experienced through a new creation. And that's you. Christian. That's what you're living. The Lord has freed us from our bondage to sin and slavery. He's ended our exile. He's leading us to the promised land of the new creation, which will be a cosmic temple calibrated as a perfect environment for our glorified bodies where we will enjoy God's presence in Christ together forever. That Christian and no less is the hope that is set before you. Don't throw it away just because you want a cheap thrill from sin. We should repent of our sins. Again, repentance is not optional to being a Christian. Forgiveness is free. Repentance doesn't earn you anything with God. Because even your repentance remains stained with sin till the day you die. But repentance is the only way you come to terms with a sovereign, righteous God whose mercy is His alone to give. God does not save us on our terms. He saves us on His terms. And His terms are that we agree with Him about our sinfulness that if we want to come into his house, then we must live by his rules. We must agree with him about what is righteous and what is not. And we must learn to obey. We must commit to that. You cannot turn to God in Christ and remain loyal to the sins that offend him or to your own sinful attempts at a self-made righteousness that you hope will impress him somehow. You forsake your sins and your sinful self-reliance on your own morality. That's how you come in. And you keep forsaking them. You fight them. You treat sin as your enemy, even though it's 
tenacious and relentless and keeps indwelling your heart even after you repent of it. You trust only in the blood and righteousness of Jesus and you grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. As the orientation of your whole life. If you're not repenting, then that is evidence that you are still not believing. Christian belief repents. Saving faith always turns from sin to God. If you are repenting, and if you are lamenting and fighting the imperfections and sins that remain in your repentance, then that is a sign that you are a new creation now and will have a place in the new creation when Jesus comes back to make all things new. Now, to end where we began, do modern Christian leaders have this same gift of healing? No. This ability to heal is unique to the apostles and their closest associates as a marker of the times, of the beginning of the times of refreshing. Besides, think about the differences between this healing in Acts 3 and the ones claimed by modern faith healers. This healing in Acts 3 was public. Everybody saw it. It was visible. The guy could walk when he was a lifelong paralytic. It was organic. This had to do with bones and ligaments and blood. It was immediate. In the name of Jesus Christ, get up and walk. It was total. It was not partial. He didn't get up limping. He got up leaping. And it was permanent. Everybody witnessed it. It was real, external, verifiable healing of disease. Like the setting of a bone. It wasn't back pain or a migraine. It was paralysis of the feet and ankles in a man known by all the locals. There was no hocus-pocus, no magical incantation, no formulaic phrase or special environment. And you notice, too, what miraculous power does. It restores the humanity and functionality of the person. It does not take that humanity and functionality away. And so many of the purported healings or miraculous experiences that we see touted today, what happens? It, it dehumanizes. It takes people out of their right mind. It makes them unable to worship. Not this one. This one puts the guy right into the temple, worshiping along with everybody else in his right mind and in his right body. Today's purported healings are private very often, invisible, mystical, magical, superstitious, psychological, often gradual, and often partial. The most spectacular ones seem to be related only by word of mouth. John MacArthur asked this question a long time ago, back in the 70s. If this degree of 
miraculous healing is going on today, then why isn't it happening in hospitals? Why doesn't Benny Hinn go walking up and down a hospital? Or the scenes of school shootings? Or in war-torn countries? Or in megacities ravaged by earthquakes? There's plenty of opportunities. But it seems to only happen when a guy has a piece in his ear. <laughs> Why is it always stuff that can't be seen? Back pains and migraines. Come on, really? Why not the complete, immediate, and permanent healing of broken bones, like we see here? What if we had known today's people who are purportedly healed of their paralysis before they were on TV? What if we followed them after the cameras stopped rolling? But if modern Christian leaders do not have the gift of healing today, then does that mean God no longer heals people today, period? No, it doesn't mean that either. God does still heal people today. It simply means that God has not given miraculous healing powers to particular people today. And it means that God uses providential rather than miraculous means to heal us. And even when we cannot explain how someone's cancer disappeared or how some other sickness was resolved, the most reasonable and faithful thing to conclude is not necessarily that God suspended the ordinary laws of nature to accomplish that healing. It's rather that he superintended those laws by his ordinary providence to accomplish his good purposes for those who love him. God is still God. He is still the Lord, our healer. But the apostolic gifts were for apostolic times. The apostles and prophets were the foundation of the church, Ephesians 2. That foundation is only laid once, by definition. Those miraculous gifts attested not merely the message, but the men themselves as apostles, hand-picked messengers and representatives of Jesus himself for preaching and writing new revelation about the meaning of Jesus' person, position, and power. Those gifts are not being reproduced today. They're being mimicked and counterfeited in false signs and wonders that would deceive, if possible, even the elect, as Jesus actually warned. Besides, does God really promise all Christians health and healing in this life? Is physical healing yours for the taking as a Christian? No. This passage is not a promise that God will heal you of your paralysis or cancer. Not even an apostle like Paul himself could use it like that, either in his own case or in the case of others. 2 Corinthians 12, God does not heal Paul of his thorn in the flesh even after Paul asked three times that he would take it away. And Paul's an apostle. What, didn't Paul have enough faith? First Timothy 5.23, Paul does not offer to heal Timothy by a miracle, but instead tells him, why don't you take a little medicinal wine for your stomach? He doesn't say, hey, wait till I come and I'll do an abracadabra on you. No, he just says, why don't you, why don't you take a little something for that? 
2 Timothy 4.20, Paul left Trophimus sick in Miletus instead of healing him. What could have healed him? He was an apostle. He didn't. If physical healing were the birthright of every single Christian, why wouldn't an apostle like Paul just pull the thorn out of his own flesh or heal all of his pastoral delegates at will? It's because he knows God has purposes for thorns in the flesh. It's because he knows that his power is not perfected in my power. His power is perfected in my weakness. Even Jesus himself did not want to be known mainly as a physical healer. He made that very clear as early as Mark 1, the morning after he had been casting out demons, healing people. He was praying. Peter comes, tells him, everyone's looking for you. Do it again. Do it again. Yesterday was awesome. Did he go back to healing? No. He said, let us go down to the next towns that I may preach there also for that. That is why I came up to preach. The healing only confirmed the teaching. The healing was secondary. The preaching was primary. And what was the message of that preaching? Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension gives healing access to God's promised new creation. That's better than physical healing. Physical healing can only be temporary because we will still die. But healing access to God's promised new creation is forever. And that, that is the miracle that God wants to work for you. But is it the one you want? Let's pray. Lord Christ, we confess that we have often asked you for things that you have not promised to give us, for things that you did not die to secure for us. We have so often set our hearts and minds on the things of this world that we have forgotten what it is like to set our minds on things above and to set our hearts and hopes on those things rather than on the things of this earth, even our bodies. Lord, we pray, give us grace to want what you have promised and to be content with what you have not promised to give us. Help us not to demand what you have never said that you would give. Lord, reform our desires so that what we want is what you have committed to give. For your glory in our lives, we pray. Amen.